Well, a lot of cities um, I've noticed in my travels, maybe you've noticed this, they have themes or they have ways to market themselves uh, to say, welcome here. This is something about our city or our small town. Uh, A few that I can recall, these are all true. I know you'll fact check me uh, later, not during the sermon, but uh, Walla Walla, Washington, a city so nice, we named it twice. Happy Texas, turn that frown upside down. San Andreas, California, it's not our fault. Weed, Oklahoma, we'd like to welcome you. Gas, Texas, don't pass gas, stop and enjoy, the sign says. Here's one, Hooker, Oklahoma, it's a location, not a vocation. And then one, these are all true. Here's one uh, from Modesta, California. It says this on the, in the welcome entrance, Modesta, California, water, wealth, contentment, health. Now, all those are true. Like I said, you'll check me later to make sure I'm on, on point there. But uh, this is true, but is it true? I mean, it's how they market themselves, but what are they promising here? Water, wealth, contentment, and health. Uh, there are places like Jackson at times, Flint, Michigan, that can't necessarily promise water. But uh, can Modesta promise that? Well, maybe, but can they promise all four? Can they promise it together? And the word really that we're looking at in this question is, can they promise, can a place promise contentment? We're going to begin a new series today on the book of Ecclesiastes. It's back in the back. If you know Psalms and Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, before the Song of Solomon, it's part of wisdom literature. I hope we can elevate Uh, our wisdom. Y'all know I preach this a lot, but Proverbs says, uh, seek three things above all, knowledge, understanding, and wisdom. Knowledge is facts and data and statistics. Understanding is when you give the facts, data, and statistics, some priority, some sequence, and some order. But wisdom is above all because wisdom is when, this is when we have a breakdown. You and I, we have a breakdown of wisdom. I'm not so sure that it's knowledge and understanding. Sometimes it is, but wisdom is when you can skillfully apply what you know to be true in your life. So we're looking at this wisdom literature and we're going to look at a time for everything. You'll remember last week we talked about endings and I had some poster boards up on the stage here. We talked about uh, w- when you're called, you can stay or you can go and you can, there's a stay that's stuck and uh, a stay that, that's steadfast. And God's always calling us. He invites us to, to endings so that we can have beginnings. And he calls us, whether it's a, uh, some of us look for new cities, new jobs, new spouses, new places, uh, new beginnings. But God ultimately gives us a new heart, a new mind, a new spirit. He says that we'll have a new song. And one day, uh, he's creating a new heaven and a new earth. God is a fan for all of us to move and to go And we've looked at just a time for beginnings. You remember what Ecclesiastes says in probably some of the most famous uh, verses in all 12 chapters. It says there's an occasion for everything, a time for every activity under heaven. There's a time to be born and a time to die, uh, a time to plant and a time to uproot, a time to heal and a time uh, to kill, a time to laugh and a time to weep, a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to embrace and a time to shun, embracing a time to gather, a time to scatter, a time to, to, to keep Um, silent, a time to speak up, a time to love, a time to hate, a time for war, and a time for peace. There's a time for every activity under heaven, it says. And so we are in these weeks, beginning today, going to look at the following. A time today, this is it, a time to consider what is meaningful, Uh, a time to work, a time to grow old, a time to pursue wisdom, a time to understand what can get us 
off tracks. We're going to be looking at these things over uh, these weeks. But today I want you to think about how it's, there is a time to ponder what is important, to think about what really matters. And isn't it kind of funny and ironic that, um, that we hear so many preachers and philosophers and teachers it's a part of so many books and so many movies where we thought it was this, but it's this. I thought this would bring me happiness, but it's this. But yet we all are on this journey. We're all walking this road that's different but similar. But all of us, uh, we can put our head down and we can think. We can just chase and chase and chase and think that these things bring us happiness when they, in fact, do not. So let me ask you as we begin, how satisfied are you? Let's do the one to 10. You know how this works. One, you're not satisfied. 10, you're like obnoxiously happy, content, and satisfied. How satisfied are you one to 10 with your job? You're ready to tell your boss, man, hey, take this job and shove it, number one. Or 10, man, you are working in your dream. How satisfied? You're working in your dream job. How satisfied you are you in your job? How satisfied are you with your income? You're constantly thinking on the scale of one, two, three or so that, man, I just, I need more money. I've got to raise my level of pay. I got to get a side hustle or this has got to work for me. Or number 10, you've, you've, you've got it. How satisfied you One to marriage. Don't blink. Just look forward to give a number and let's move on. Uh, how satisfied are you in your singleness? If you're single uh, this day, how satisfied you are you? One to 10, how, one to 10, how satisfied are you with the overall condition of your life. Have you noticed there's one word that can be so dominating and you say it every day. I was with a young parents and we were watching Charles Dickens, Oliver Twist. Anybody remember Oliver Twist? And there's that scene in the orphanage where the little blonde cute boy uh, goes up to the, the couple that's leading the orphanage and he asks for, he's got this bowl and he asks for more and just everything explodes into a giant musical and it uh, makes you feel uh, bad for orphanages and people back in the day especially, but uh, he wanted more. This little boy asked for more. I mean, is it wrong? Now Dickens, you know, has got social commentary that's pretty skillful, but is it wrong to ask for more? I mean, don't you want more today? How would you fill in this blank? I want more blank. And it could be related to our little one to 10 scale that we just did a moment ago. How, how much more do you want? What do you want more of? And more is a word that can die. I want more time. I, I want more money. I want more experiences. I want more travel. I want more uh, adventure. I want more pleasure. I want more house. I want more spouse, sort of. Uh, it's just easy to want. And more is this, it can be a really dominating devilish word for all of us. I, I think about it. Now, more is not an evil word, is it? If, if it can you think of passages, Ephesians three twenty? God will do immeasurably more. So more is not an evil thing, but more can be, and it can be so dominating. Uh, years ago when I lived in South Florida, I took my California wife uh, to the Everglades, and she was watching these turtles, just these little turtle reptiles sunning themselves on these rocks in this lagoon. And she didn't know it, but she was standing about 10 feet from a big old alligator. There was a sign that, that said this. It said, alligators may live here. And I should have contacted someone. Who, who, who's that park ranger that's in the Everglades and says alligators may live here? I mean, alligators live there. It's, there's no may about it. Maybe they're meant that specific spot. But we had a, a scare that day because we were so close to one, my wife in particular. But it said this on the sign, I noticed it. A fed gator is a dangerous gator. 
And what does that mean? A fed, I would think the opposite. Would you? A fed gator is a dangerous gator. It means, the re- rationale there is that it always wants more. And so if you feed it, it thinks, ah, more. And it's just, it just doesn't ever seem to be satisfied. And it strikes me that human beings are awfully like alligators in this respect. You feed and we want more. Give us a little, we want to take some more. More, more, more. It's such a dominating word in our lives. How satisfied, how satisfied are you? This book of Ecclesiastes is 12 chapters. If you want to turn there, that's great. If not, just look at the screen. It'll all be up there. But in Ecclesiastes, before we put up the passage, the first verse in the first chapter, I do want to just give you a little bit of background or a little bit of perspective here. It's one of the most... um, it's one of the most complicated and unique books in the Bible. Some scholars uh, put it right up there with Revelation. Revelation is unique and complicated in that it has, uh, it's sort of a, well, not sort of, it has so much apocalyptic literature in it. That makes it quite difficult. When a small group at Fondren Church tells me they're studying the book of Revelation, it, you know, the first verse of Revelation, it talks about blessed are those who read these words. So I'm happy because it says you'll be happy if you read them, but I'm always a little concerned that you're reading Revelation. Uh, we want to help you and guide you in that because it's complicated and it's unique. Well, why then is Ecclesiastes complicated and unique? There's nothing apocalyptic about it as in, as you have in Revelation, but I think two reasons there that it's um, complicated that it's hard to read and hard to understand if you don't have the right prism from which you view it. And it, two, two reasons, it's structure and it's tone. It's structure, it seems to ramble and it seems at times to repeat itself. Well, it does. Let me say this, let me get this right. It seems to ramble and it definitely repeats itself. It seems uh, unpredictable. There's twist in it um, and there's a a uh, type of a Hebrew understanding in the ancient Middle Eastern literature of the time where it's called spiraling. What we think in the Western mind and our education system is built on this, and some of you are very, th- very this way, but it's linear, it's a line, it's logical, it goes this way. But Ecclesiastes is a lot more like life. It's unpredictable and it's circular, it spirals. How many times have you laid everything out according to your plans and you had A to Z covered? You had it all laid out. This is how it's gonna work and then life became unpredictable. And by the way, doesn't, isn't life a little bit, it's the reason I appreciate Ecclesiastes because it's a lot, uh, it's a lot like Groundhog Day. It sort of repeats itself, it's on repeat. And it uses this phrase, under the sun. It uses it uh, 29 times, under the sun. And what does that mean? We could go vertical, horizontal, that gives us some perspective. But under the sun means your outlook calendar. It means your daily activities. It, It means what you do every day. You wake up, you take a shower, you eat breakfast, you commute to work, you interact at work, you're somewhat productive at work, you meet up with friends, you go home, you have dinner, you watch TV, you go to bed. This is your life under the sun. And the older you get, the more you will begin to think, man, life just repeats itself. And so that's the structure of the book. I kind of like it because I like repetition. As a teacher, I see the value of repetition. Repetition aids learning, and that's important. But I'll also appreciate the fact that it's unpredictable. It gives us a new template of which to interpret life itself 
in our lives, and then we relate to it. But okay, so it's structure, but also it's tone. What is the tone of Ecclesiastes? If, if I sent you this and you didn't know it was in the Bible, if I wasn't preaching it these uh, six weeks, and we didn't, you know, I didn't have a Bible, we didn't open the Bible, put it on the screen, and I, I just sent it to you via text, or, or you know, sent it to your house via bonded courier on a parchment with no references to the Bible, you would be probably very surprised that this was in the Bible. It's moody, it seems, and brooding, and cynical, and hopeless. It seems more like the words of a depressed French philosopher. Ecclesiastes 1.1, let's begin, it says this. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Solomon wrote Ecclesiastes uh, but uh, he doesn't identify himself. It's kind of like that thing some of y'all been doing on social media or that you've seen, like tell us your blank without blank. Tell it, how's it go? Tell us your blank without telling us your blank. Did I get that right? Tell us you're from the South without telling us you're from the South. Tell us you're, you know, a Christian without telling us you're a Christian. Tell us you're a mom without telling us you're a mom. So it's a visual, it's an image, it's a, it's a reference that just shows you by blank, you can identify as blank. And so uh, scholars, historians have deduced this way that David had many sons. He identifies himself as a son of David. David had several sons, but um, who was the king of Jerusalem? It was Solomon. And who had the wealth? Who amassed the riches? Who accumulated the experiences? Who pursued the pleasure of no one like this guy, Solomon? He oversaw the building of the temple that took seven years. He had, I think you've heard this, even if you're not a person of faith, a church person, or know much about the Bible. He had 700 wives and 300 girlfriends. Valentine's Day had to be a nightmare. And by the way, this will help you to understanding this. He's not saying, he's not writing ever to, you know, saying, I'm condoning what I've done. He's writing to say, I've regret what I've done. That could be really helpful for you and I to understand this. He wrote some 3,000 proverbs. Some, he wrote 1,005 of the maxims of the Song of Solomon. Uh, here's my opinion, and it is a highly educated opinion. Solomon wrote the Song of Songs when he was a young man. He wrote Proverbs in his middle age, and he wrote Ecclesiastes when he was an old guy. And in writing this, he starts off by identifying um, his status who he belongs to, he's writing to his people. In verse two, he starts to give us some of this um, depressed French philosopher language. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Anybody in the house or at, at home with the Bible open, depending on your English translation, it says vanity, uh, some say futility, some say meaningless, and uh, that's not, uh, I don't think that's a, again, human opinion here. I don't think that's a good uh, word or the best word for this. Uh, what it refers to, look at the Hebrew, because that's where we get this uh, original writing, original language. And it's, uh, it's hivel, hivel, it's hivel of hivels, over and over. In fact, it's said 38 times. Now, under the sun is used 28 times. Hivel of hivels is used uh, 38 times in these 12 chapters. And he's saying, not so much meaningless, he's saying vanity or futility. He's saying breath or vapor. It doesn't last long. I think back, we just had a, um, our middle child, 
our only girl just left for her spring semester. She was here for six weeks, which at first I thought that's too long. But uh, she left yesterday and I'm thinking that wasn't long enough. And you know, you, you can find her, you find the friend on your phone, but, but you still call to make sure she got there. And she rolls her eyes, dad, you know I made it, just look at your phone. But that's, you know, you, 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 you forearm, you stiff arm technology because you, you want that closeness, you want to check. And um, that's what I did. But I think back to when my children were so little, none of them went off to college and they were just little and, and uh, evolve, if evolve, uh, not that that's not meaningless. In fact, just the opposite. It's, it's, it's not futile. It's not vanity, but it just doesn't, it's just a breath when they're, when they're two years old and you're playing with them on the floor, enjoy every moment. Evolve, evolves. Oh, it, in fact, it's, it, it attaches more meaning. So here's the thing under the sun, all right, under the sun, under the sun, it's vanity. It, we just don't live long. It doesn't last long. It's meaningless. We could say, or the opposite. We could say with God, with the creator, it's very meaningful, but oh, by the way, it doesn't last long. It's a breath, it's a vapor, it's a cold morning. I don't know that we're gonna reach 40. I think it's in the 30s when you left the house. It was hovering above freezing. Uh, Nick Crawford texted me earlier this morning and said, I think we should go on with church as planned. And it was like 33, 34 degrees. We looked at other churches, not that we don't wanna be original and trailblazing, but we looked to see what other churches were doing. Some had postponed their services. Thank you for being here at 9.30. Uh, all that to say, it's a very cold morning out there and if you didn't do it you can do it now if you're at home hit pause and walk outside and just breathe and you will see that breath in these almost freezing temperatures that's your life Heval of evolves and he says he says this is this is us how long is it going to last? How satisfied? What are you going to look for when you're looking for satisfaction? What are you going to chase? Let's look at a few verses here, continuing on in the first chapter. Just boom, boom. A generation goes and a generation comes. This is verses 4, 9, and 11. We're skipping some. It'd be great during the series if you read the whole 12 chapters. Y'all want to do that? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there's nothing new under the sun. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. This guy needs a hug. He's saying, man, are, is anything going to be remembered? I should have brought it on stage with me on this, on this table. I, I probably will for the next service. I, I forgot. But I, in my office and at home, ask Susan. It's kind of the mess in me. We both love to declutter. We love to keep a clean home and, and place. But, but I've got, uh, there's things I collect, and uh, a lot of it's digital. You'd be surprised how much of it's not because of just, uh, when preachers preach, I don't know if you know this, but we preach, and then we, Sunday afternoon, spend in a deep valley. And it doesn't matter how the day goes, circumstances. We just go into a deep valley because preaching's an art, and you put hours and hours of, into it. You put your heart, in some ways, your life into it. And then you wonder, did it have an impact? And did it matter? And here's the trick, is anybody gonna remember? 
And I was thinking about that in writing this sermon. I looked at all these little note cards because every page, it starts out like 16 pages. Aren't you glad I don't preach those? And then it dwindled down to like nine pages. And then the, from Friday to and Thursday, Friday, and Saturday, when I'm not doing the pastor thing and I'm studying, doing the preacher thing, uh, it just, it's just a matter of throwing things out, just throwing things away so that you can have a sermon that can be formatted and uh, uh, what we're accustomed to. And it just, so it all comes down to three pages. And then by Saturday, I'm walking around with those three pages. I hold on to those three pages. I like to put those three pages into my mind because all the work, it's already in my heart. It's somewhere between familiarized and memorized, moving closer to the memorized. And it's just three pages. Well, I just leave them everywhere. And then Susan finds them all over the house and they're in my bedside drawer. If you walk into my office on my table over there by the books, you can see a bunch of them just stacked up and it represents in these boxes and these files and in tables and all, it just represents literally, I hate that word and try not to use it. It represents literally hundreds upon hundreds of sermons. And I've looked at those even this week, thinking about these words that seem so cynical and brooding and hopeless and jaded from Solomon. And I think, man, does anybody remember the work that I do? Does anybody remember the hours upon hours? And look, this is what I do. What do you do? Because you think the same thing. You have a craft. You have a job. You have a skill set. You make a living and you pour into it, don't you? And you get to a place in life where you wonder, does anybody remember? There's a, on Instagram, there's a, historic, there's a thing called, account called historical photographs. And I was looking at one recently, I'll show it to you. It's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a shot of New York City in the early 1900s. And I looked at this the other day and just started thinking, man, we've always been busy. We've always scurried about. And by the way, Ecclesiastes dresses this. We think we're so pro progressive. C.S. Lewis calls it chronological snobbery. We're like, oh, we're new, we're new, we're doing better things. Now, we've got the internet and we've got smartphones. Let me tell you, when did smartphones come out? Now we're starting to wise up that smartphones are kind of dumb, aren't they? So how much progress? We have breakfast tacos at Taco Bell. We've made some new things, if you will. So in a way that technically, technology can technically disprove Ecclesiastes if, if you go uh, away from the metaphor, but you get what he's saying. There, there's really nothing new under the sun. It's chronological. We think, oh, we got all this new stuff and we're all so different now because we've made progress. Oh, but have we? Have we made progress? And you think, I, as I was looking at this picture this week, I thought people are the same. New York City's changed. And a thing called COVID-19 is today making sure these many people aren't on the streets or certainly in the bars and theaters of New York City. But think about this, I know I'm stating the obvious, but just look for a second and just, uh, all these people are not with us now. Generations come and go. Let me ask you this, you at home, can you name, think about this for real, can you name your grandparents, your great-great-grandparents? Can anybody name your great, great grandparents? I bet very few of you can. And if you can, you probably can do that with the aid of Ancestry.com. But I bet no one in the room, if you can even name your great, great grandparents, you can't name what got them excited. You can't name their tear jerkers and blood boilers and their grin makers and what they enjoyed doing and how they saw the world. I bet you can't tell us anything about them because generations 
come and go. This week we lost someone. I think it was about a week ago today. You'll see a picture of him on your screen. He was a, a lot of people's uh, favorite. When I heard the news of Bob Saget's death, I realized I didn't have to tell any of my kids or anybody that was in the room with me who he was. Mark Twain said this about all of us, and this would include Bob Saget after Mark Twain's time, of course. They'll lament you for an hour and forget you forever. There'll be a funeral, and then we'll go on. And they'll come to your funeral, and then by that night, they're moving on with their lives and watching Netflix at home. Uh, Mark Twain got awfully close to some of the hard realities of Ecclesiastes. They'll lament you for an hour and forget you forever. Oh, but we're, 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 we have technology now. We can save our data and we can you know, show colorized pictures and everything. We've made so much progress. This guy, if we can cue up the video, 24 seconds here, this guy shows us that maybe our progress isn't all progress. He runs into a wall and talks about the difference between those being born in different decades. Take a look and listen. just coming so far, aren't we? Chronological, C.S. Lewis, chronological snob. Oh, smartphones, but what's it doing to us? What are we learning? What wisdom are we acquiring? So here's what Ecclesiastes, here's what he does. He's an old man, and he's, he's not saying, hey, I'm condoning my behavior. He's saying, for the most part, I'm regretting what I've done. So look at these verses. He says, I'm going to pursue pleasure. Well, there, there's just a, let's keep that up there. Here's just a little repetition here. There's no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of latter things yet to be among those who come after. He talks about, if you, when you read the first chapter, he talks about the sun and the stars and the rivers and the rocks. And he's saying uh, those things last thousands of years. And we, you and me, 70 to 80 at best. Um, your lawn, you mow it and water it and fertilize it. You may walk on it and spit on it. Uh, but just think that lawn, that lawn of yours is going to outlive you. So he says, here's what I pursued. The first thing he says is I pursued uh, education. Look at these verses in, ver- in chapter 1, verse 16 and 17. I said in my heart, he's pondering the things that are important. Are you, that's what we're asking you to do today. It's a time to think about what matters. I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me. And my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I applied my heart to no wisdom and to no madness and folly. I perceive that this, is also, this also is but a striving after the wind. Striving after the wind. I like the translation uh, the ESV is my favorite study Bible, but I love the translations that say chasing after the wind. If you saw someone cha- running across your lawn and you were to say to them, that friend or neighbor you were to, or stranger, you were to say, hey, what are you doing? And they were to look back at you and say, I'm chasing after the wind. You would say, keep running, get off my lawn, and you're, not, you're never going to catch it. Um, y'all know in July, I try not to talk 
too much about him, but he is my boy, Milton. We went and got a, a golden retriever from Memphis area, golden retriever rescue. I highly recommend it. And we went and got a, a little guy named Milton this summer in July. And Friday, I was riding him around and we saw a pony. And it was a really cute, peaceful encounter. It was so fun. And later that night, we'd gone out to play for like the third time. Uh, I'm seeing a neighbor of mine that lives over there. Milton will come over to their house and uh, get in their backyard sometimes to play with their dog uninvited. But Milton, he's just, he's just, I'm just proud of him. And I keep him off leash. I know I'm breaking laws and you can confront me later, but I feel, feel really good about the situation. And my former dog, I couldn't do that, but I just let Milton off leash. And so Susan gets nervous about it, but we, we were walking in Friday night, the same day we'd seen the pup. And Milton just runs to the neighbor's house, not, not y'all's house, but over the other way, and he started to get after something. It was a, a real um, frenetic pace with his nose. And he was just moving, moving, moving. I'm like, oh no. And we're not far from a frontage road. We just live right across the way. We're not far. And he was heading over that direction of the frontage road. So he had passed all the neighbor's house. It was some brush and then frontage road on a Friday night. And he cornered something. I thought it was a snake. I mean, it was making a hissing noise. I thought, oh no, this is not gonna end well. Susan's gonna be right. I'm not a good dog dad. And my dog's going to be dead. And he had gotten a possum. And it was a good 30 minutes. Susan was asleep. I text anybody that would respond. You know, the Green family text thread. And Haley responded, Dad, she, she came out. She already started crying because he's right by Frontage Road. And she's seen dead possums run out in the road. And she was thinking that was going to happen to Mil- Milton. Look, a dog can catch a possum. That's easy. That's an easy chase. And I began, I spent a, a long time Friday night. It seemed like hours wondering what, but you got it. Now, what are you going to do with the possum? But this is the absolute opposite. Chasing after the wind, you're never going to get it. And he said, I tried in education. I tried to amass this wisdom. Let me ask you, have you ever known anybody that's really smart, but they're also very unhappy? There's this passage in Timothy. And Timothy had read Ecclesiastes, but he adds to it to his young protege. He says he describes a type of people. It could be you. It could be the Southern American Southern Christian. It says they're always learning, but never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. And that's the way it can be. With all your education, dissertations, credentials, initials before and after your name. I read something a few months back, great minds overthink alike. And it can be easy to do, right? And he said, look, this is where, and he even says in verse 18, we don't have it up, but you're gonna read the whole book later and certainly the first chapter. It says that more wisdom can lead to greater grief, to greater pain and greater mourning. This doesn't mean be dumb, but it says just understand the limits of learning. There always learning, but never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. So he pursued through education. Secondly, he pursued through pleasure. Flip to the second chapter. We'll put these verses up. Ecclesiastes chapter two. He puts it this way in verses one to three. I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself, but behold, this also was vanity. Remember, he's chasing, he's chasing. It's not a dog easily catching a possum. It's someone running across your lawn trying to catch the wind. I said of laughter, it is mad. And of pleasure, what use is it? I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, 
my heart still guiding me with wisdom and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the last, during the few days of their lives. Not just, I'm sorry, not the last few, just the few days. We tend to think last few, but it's just few. And he says, through this pleasure, let me ask you how much wine is enough. Now read the whole book and take every verse in the Bible in context. Ecclesiastes chapter nine and verse one says, enjoy good food and enjoy good wine. If that's your thing, do it. Food is everybody's thing, but wine can be your thing or not. But if you do, health, balance, vitality, feasting, joy, laughter around the table, it is a good gift of God. But here we go with this mood. Here we go with this brooding. Here we go with this honest assessment. How much wine is enough? And then he would say in verse four, I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. We're talking about workers. We're talking about massive uh, undertakings. We're talking about musicians playing the lyre and the harp and all these instruments, the cymbal and the tambourine, all these people like, you know, you go to the U2 concert. Uh, he brought U2 to his house. That, that's what we're looking at here in this guy, Solomon. And he's saying, vanity of vanities, futility of futility, all of Hival, breath, vapor. Floyd Mayweather, I watched a couple years back. Um, I watched him on one of those shows where he shows you his house. And here's one of his houses. It's a 25,000 square foot home that Floyd Mayweather has in Las Vegas. Should have been a boxer. And 25,000 square feet. And in this show, uh, he takes you to his garage. And in this one particular garage, this is one of several, it's a seven car garage. Uh, each, uh, the cars in some total, over 15 million. And he said at that point, when he was showing the cars to this television show, he said, I haven't driven any of them. One of his houses. Historians and scholars will tell you, because like you collect, you know, Floyd Mayweather collects cars and houses and stuff. Solomon collects silver and gold. So can I just say, by way of scale and measure and comparison, Floyd Mayweather couldn't touch Solomon. That's what we're looking at, at this level. And he's saying, vanity of vanities, it didn't bring me what I thought it would bring me. So we're looking at just a few this morning because of the clock and because of what your attention span can handle, what your seat can handle, your mind. I looked, I chased after, I strived after the wind for education, for pleasure, for acquisition, and for wealth. These were the things that I was looking for. First John chapter two, uh, verses uh, 14 to 16, and the message, very readable, not the version, um, not the paraphrase I would study, okay? So don't critique me later. Here's what Peterson, how he renders it. Don't love the world's ways. Don't love the world's goods. Love of the world squeezes out love for the Father. Practically everything that goes on in the world, wanting your own way, wanting everything for yourself, wanting to appear important, has nothing to do with the Father. It just isolates you from Him. The world and all its wanting, wanting, wanting is on the way out. But whoever does what God want, wants is set for eternity. What is it that you're chasing after? And let me ask you, where's it going to end? 
where will it end? The rocks and the rivers, the sun and sea and stars, read it in the first chapter, look at it in science in our world today, last for thousands, millions of years. You and I, for a much briefer span, how will that brief span end? Let me show you. As the team begins to come up, I'm going to close with this, but take a look at, in all likelihood, where it will end. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Now, remember, we're, we're making this a six-week series that's easy to do. It could be a 52-week series. We're going to go for six, five more. So even though I'm quoting from the 12th chapter, we're not ending the series just today. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. How will your life end? I want to show this picture. In all likelihood, it will end here. I've been in the ministry since I was 21 years old. I was a campus minister in Florida. So that's a, a long, long time to be in ministry. I was parachurch for 14 years. and went in the church for about 20 I've had the opportunity, just keep that up if you will. I've had the opportunity to sit by many of these. To be there with someone, to be there with a family. And I want to tell you what I have never heard ever. I've never heard anybody say, man, hey, would y'all go get my golf trophies? Hey, would you, would you leave here in this moment? Would you go get my bowling trophies? Would, would you go to the bank and make a large withdrawal? I want to hold that. I want to hold cash money as I lay in this bed. Hey, would you go to the house and get that BMW and shine it up and spit on it and polish it and park it right out there? In fact, move that plan. I want to look out there and I want to, I want to, I want to look right before I go. I want to look at my BMW. Your life and mine. Now, let me say this about Ecclesiastes. For those who are like, man, if you're going to read it for the first time, especially this, this week, <clears throat> and you're going to go, man, woo, okay, I know Robert said some things to temper it, but man, it is cynical. Well, when I was a young man in my mid-20s, I remember I was slated to do a wedding on a weekend. But the groom was killed at work that week with a piece of heavy machinery. And as a 20-something-year-old, I remember thinking, they don't teach you this in seminary. When you're planning to do a wedding, but then you're doing a funeral. But to be with that family, I had no words. I experienced the angst. I experienced anger at God. I wondered about it all. And the cynical, under-the-sun perspective says, it's meaningless. Do you know why that hurts us so? You know why that moves us and why that gets to us? To be planning a wedding and then turn around and do a funeral? Do you, do you know, do you know what, what, what we're learning, what we will learn as we think about what matters? Is that shows you actually the value of us and the value of life. And that it is a breath and a vapor. Hevel of Hevels, it won't last long. But on that bed, on that spot, where you will spend your last day in all likelihood. People want to know two things and two things only. Am I right with my family? And am I right with God? Would you stand with me? Let me pray. Father, would you help us this day think about what matters the most?
would you blunt would you would you stop would you help us to push pause on the chasing the writer we're learning that we will learn that the writer was not writing this to depress us but to draw our eyes upward toward heaven and to begin to think now a man with so much regret is asking us not condoning what he's done but asking us regretting what he's done and asking us to remember you our creator in the days of our youth so for everyone's one to ten answers are we satisfied Lord would you help us to look to you in Jesus we pray amen we're going to take up offering. We're going to reserve this time for singing. And we would ask for you um, to pray. I'm going to be down front and I would love the microphones off. We have artful camera operators so that we won't show you to the home audience today if you want to come down. But nobody should be caring what other people are thinking. You come today to the open altar to pray, uh, to, to, to seek prayer. We would love to pray for you if there's a decision about the direction of your life, a need in your life or something that you're rejoicing over. Let's give these few minutes to God and be obedient to him.